So this morning we continue our series on a life of rest. And if you remember, that started with um, Jesus saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We, um, after looking at Jesus' call to rest, then we looked back at creation and how the in creation, God designed rest right in the creation. So every day there was a call to rest. It started with the evening and then the morning. So we start our day in that place of rest and trust in him. And then there's this rhythm of weekly rest where he commands us to remember the Sabbath. And we're remembering it because it's a day of non-obligation. We're free to focus exclusively on him in that day of rest. And so we have looked at these um, calls to enter into a life of rest. And um, today we're going to look at one thing that interferes with that and distracts us away from rest and its busyness. And so um, it's been said when we're busier than what God requires, we do violence to ourselves. That's really quite a strong quote. And I um, think that we'll see this morning in God's word where um, failure to enter into God's rest actually is doing violence against ourselves. And so resting from busyness, and we're going to go back to Luke. We preached through Luke, but it's been several years. And we're going to go back to Luke chapter 10 as our primary text this morning. And then we'll also be looking just briefly at the story of Elijah from the Old Testament as well. And so resting from busyness, starting with Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. When we're trying to do too many things, we're really not efficient. Would you agree? If we're trying to multitask, and I thought this picture kind of summed it up. He's got his laptop. He's trying to read something from the newspaper, and I don't think it's the crossword puzzle, although maybe he's trying to figure that out. I don't know. Um, But he's also trying to eat his breakfast, and he's pouring orange juice into his cereal. And I don't know about you, but that's not usually what I put on my cereal. I put on milk. And so overproductivity is really not productive at all. It can be quite inefficient. And I want to start this um, message with a story And um, I think that it would be best to hear it from the person, um, they're not here to speak this story, but Mark Buchanan is a minister um, out on um, 
I think it's uh, oh, Vancouver, out in Vancouver. Um, what's that island out there? Victoria. Is it Victoria? This is why I don't try to remember these things. Um, <clears throat> this is why I'm going to read you his story. Um, because he says it much better um, than I could try to remember what he said. All right, so um, Pastor Mark telling this story. The world is not dying for another book, but it is dying for the rest of God. I certainly was. I became a Sabbath keeper the hard way, either that or die. Not literally die, at least I don't think so, but die in other ways. It happened subtly over time, but I noticed at some point that the harder I worked, the less I accomplished. I was often a whirligig of motion. My days were intricately fitted together like the old game of mousetrap, every piece precariously connected to every other, the whole thing needing to work together for it to work at all. But there was little joy and stunted fruit. To justify myself, I tell others I was gripped by a magnificent obsession. I was purpose-driven, I said, or words like that. It may have begun that way. It wasn't that way any longer. Often I was obsessed, merely driven, no magnificence or purposefulness about it. I once went 40 days, an ominously biblical number, without taking a single day off. And I was proud of it. But things weren't right. Though my work often consumed me, I was losing my pleasure in it, and for that matter, in many other things besides, and losing also my effectiveness in it. And here's the secret. For all my busyness, I was increasingly slothful. I could while away hours at a time in a masquerade of working, a pantomime of toil, fiddling around on the computer, leafing through old magazines, chatting it up with people in the hallways, but I squandered time, not redeeming it. And whenever I stepped out for a vacation, I did just that. I vacated, evacuated, spilled myself empty. I folded in on myself like a tent, suddenly bereft of stakes and ropes and poles, clapped hard by the wind. The air went out of me. The inmost places suffered most. I was losing perspective. Fissures in my character worked themselves here and there in cracks. Some widened into ruptures. I grew easily irritable, paranoid, bitter, self-righteous, gloomy. I was often argumentative. I preferred righteousness to intimacy. I avoided and I withdrew. I had a few people I confided in, but few friends. I didn't understand friendship. And then I came to my senses. I wish I could say this happened in one blazing, dazzling vision, a voice from heaven, a light that blinded and wounded and healed, but it didn't. It was more of a slow dawning. I didn't lose my marriage or my family or ministry or health. I didn't wallow in pig muck, scavenging for husk and rinds. But it became clear that if I continued in the way I was heading, I was going to do lasting damage. And it became obvious that the pace and scale of my striving were paying diminishing returns. My drivenness was doing no one any favors. I couldn't keep it up and had no good excuse to try. I learned to keep Sabbath in the crucible of breaking it. Mark's story. 
in his book, The Rest of God, he um, describes this, um, he kind of does a compare and contrast between the Exodus rendition of um, the Ten Commandments and keeping the Sabbath and the Deuteronomy one. And he says, in the Sabbath, that's the command to rest on the seventh day in Exodus, it's grounded in creation. And we're called to imitate God's resting, his example. And as we follow his example, we receive the blessings. And so it's an invitation. While it's a command, it's a warm invitation. In Deuteronomy, he noticed that the Sabbath was grounded in the liberation. Remember, in Deuteronomy, it talks about how that God delivered them out of Egypt and through the sea. And so in the call to Sabbath in Deuteronomy, it's taking hold of God's deliverance and observing God's command. It's a warning. Never again are you to be slaves to slave masters. This is not your identity. And by resting on the Sabbath, you're um, making a pronouncement that I will not be, again, come under the slavery of 24-7 work. Remember how awful it was for Egypt, for Israel and Egypt, where they just kept piling on the work, they kept making the bricks, then they had to go get the straw for the bricks, but keep up the quota. It was awful. And so he says, this understanding helps us understand that, yes, this call to rest is imitating God, but it's also a declaration that we're not going to be enslaved again. We're not going to be put into that. So he said, as we think about these um, tendencies that we have to be overly productive and to not enter into God's rest, part of um, what we're doing is we're listening to some other narrative other than God's word that calls us to rest. And he said, I think it might be that we listen to half-truths and we kind of get sucked into it. Now remember that um, we are commanded to rest. We're commanded to rest. And yet somehow even Christians are avoiding and not following that. And so he described what happened to him. He's talking about um, this taskmaster mentality. And he says, taskmasters are masters of half-truths. They couch their language in just enough reality that the whole thing has a ring of authenticity. It's true in part what they say. There is no end of things to do. I am a touch on the lazy side, he says, and I disguise it with busyness. There's a crowd of people disappointed with me who find me. Sometimes they find me indecisive, sometimes timid, rash, evasive, blunt, foolhardy, wise in my own eyes. Sometimes I'm foot-dragging. Sometimes I'm impulsive. I do procrastinate too much. And at the same time, I make too many snap decisions. Most of my life is unfinished. Many of my efforts are slipshod and slapdash. It's true. So the lie that's mixed in there, because that is true, then I have no right to rest. So the lie is that he was believing I have no right to rest because I am lazy and because I do do things improperly and poorly in some times. 
He said, actually, that's true. I don't have a right to rest. I also don't have a right to a lot of things in my life, like my health, my home, my family, my salvation. May as well add rest to the rest of the list. But thank God that God could care less about our rights. What he cares about and cares deeply about is our needs. And it's this simple. You and I have an inescapable need for rest. We have a need for rest. And the half-truth, sometimes it's our own thinking, our own thoughts. I shouldn't stop to rest. Sometimes it's the world telling us you should, right? The culture says don't rest. You know, you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You have to be productive. Um, In North America, we're thinking we have to succeed. We have to prevail in everything that we do. Um, It's kind of a culture thing. And then there's even sometimes the enemy saying, you don't have the right to rest. And as providence would have it, I happened to be listening to a counselor recently, a Christian counselor. And she talked about Brene Brown and some work that she had done um, and some TED Talks that she had given on the topic of shame. Now, stay with me a minute because there's a point in me bringing up this social worker talking about shame. She said these things. She said that shame is about that there's a belief that I am wrong or that I'm not enough. And that's what drives people's actions and behaviors. And I thought, hmm, I need to listen to this. She said, women tend to be perfectionistic because of shame. When they're threatened, they compare themselves to one another, they get tearful, and if they're really feeling threatened, they try to pursue. Men, if they're being bothered by shame, and whether it's just a sense of shame, or I would even say maybe a spirit of shame, anything that even gets close to failure... Um, shame says to a man, you can't do this. You may not fail. Um, And so therefore there's this feeling of being threatened. If there's any sense of potential failure, then we'll likely end up with an angry outburst or shutting down. What they see is that then the men will tend to isolate. So can you see how men and women in their tendencies to reacting to this sense of shame, the women might try to pursue, you know, like, what's going on? You know, you come home and you have a bad day and the guy's getting quieter and the woman's going, well, what is it? What is it? What is it? Trying to pursue and the guy's, like, getting angry and then, like, I don't want to talk about it because I don't want anybody to know. I don't want to be vulnerable that I might not be, um, you know, succeeding in a particular area of my work or my life or relationships or whatever. So is it possible, I just want to pose this, I mean, providentially I happened to hear this talk, is it possible that even shame is something that we are not um, living into our identity as beloved ones? Are we recognizing God's truth of grace to us. Everything about the gospel is grace. 
God created us in his image. That was grace. He created us in the Garden of Eden, humanity in the Garden of Eden, to be in relationship with him, to be in this loving relationship, to have royal work, to um, have purpose in life. Sin took that away, and it seems like ever since the fall that sin and the enemy, even shame, would say, you don't deserve to have time with the Creator. You need to stay busy. You need to perform. You need to prove yourself. But really the truth is it's all grace. Salvation is grace. Rest is a gift. Work is a gift. When we rest, we're directly confronting a workspace righteousness. And in this area, it seems like we tend to um, have kind of even almost a mentality sometimes of what we can do and we're going to do good, right? But God is good. And when we sit down and obey him by resting in him and listening to him, we're actually coming up and confronting and saying, I'm living in grace instead of I'm living in performance because we can never perform enough. We can never do enough to earn our salvation or to be in right relationship. The way we come into right relationship is through the blood of Jesus Christ, what he did on that cross. And so it's a gospel of grace. And we see this in this story of Mary and Martha, where Jesus has stopped to meet with them. There was an encounter. There was an invitation. And what a beautiful thing to see how Jesus came against the culture of that day to invite the women to sit down and to be discipled in that environment. But Martha was so busy. She was so distracted. And the Lord said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. That word worried, it's a unique word. When you see something that's just used once in the New Testament, once in the Old Testament, it's like, pay attention. This is really unique. What is this word about? It's about being drug around, being drawn away, being distracted by, being overly occupied or too busy about a thing. In the Old Testament, the word that's used would mean to be perplexed or despairing. And so what was Martha being drug around by? A cultural expectation that there was going to be a meal and it was going to be prepared by the women. And um, yet there was really just one thing that she should have been drug around by, but it wasn't even a drug around by. It would just be this warm invitation. Can you imagine if Jesus just showed up right now? Because actually he's here right now. And he's here saying, I want to meet with you. I want to meet with you. And what if we're just busy on our phones, we're busy with our own thoughts, we're trying to do some stuff for him, or even if we were trying to fix a meal for him, think about it. He's the one that just made um, wine out of water. He's the one that could produce this massive feast with just thanking the Lord and starting to break bread. He didn't need anything. Jesus doesn't need anything, but he invites us and he wants a relationship And Mary chose the better thing. Now I want to tell you that even if we've... So maybe Martha, to give her the benefit of the doubt, maybe she's not seen some of these things 
and the way that the Lord has um, been with her time and time again so that she could relax on the expectations. But I want to go back to a story in the Old Testament of Elijah that's found in 1 Kings, and I'm not going to read it, but I just want to um, tell you the story a little bit. I want to tell you that Elijah was a prophet, and there was this um, call for God's people um, to follow him and to love him and to worship him. And there were these false prophets that were trying to get in the way of that. And so there was a showdown on top of a mountain. Is this starting to sound familiar to anybody? A showdown on the mountain where he said, you know, I'll pray to the true God and let your false prophets pray to whoever they're praying to and let's see who sends down the fire. And so Elijah... At the time of the sacrifice, and it's, it's a great story, and the kids probably learn it and, and have all kinds of visuals to go with it. But um, the false prophets are doing all kinds of shenanigans and dancing around and cutting themselves and, um, you know, doing everything they can. And um, Elijah's saying, if we're going to have a sacrifice, let's just pour some water on this wood. I mean, who makes a campfire and pours water on it, right? But um, he does all these things to prove that this can only be God that could bring this fire and consume this sacrifice. And so Elijah has this amazing encounter where he prays, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God of Israel and that I'm your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord so that these people will know that you are God and that you're turning their hearts back to them. And then the fire fell, and then the people were like, yes, he is God. And then if that wasn't enough, Elijah has this amazing experience of praying down rain now. And he tells the um, king, he's like, yep, go ahead and have your meal because there's a heavy rain. I hear the sound of a heavy rain. And it hadn't rained for a long time. And Elijah goes and prays and prays, and seven times he sends out a servant, and then the rain comes. Elijah has this amazing ministry time with the Lord. And then one little threat by the queen who hears it and is upset about this, and she threatens his life, and he runs for the desert. And he says, it says um, in 1 Kings 19, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Now I wonder, I just wonder if he was feeling some shame or being accused that he was going to be a failure. That even though he had encountered the Lord and God had been so faithful, does he turn to the Lord in that moment? I think being overly busy, maybe he got a little disoriented. It would make most sense if he would have just immediately prayed when he got threatened. But even he got tired, and I think that's why he got vulnerable and ran out. What does the Lord do? He sends an angel to minister to Elijah. And so he touches Elijah, gives him strength. He does it again, gives him food and water. Friends, this is what Jesus came to do at Mary and Martha's house, is to give spiritual food and spiritual drink. Because his words are life. That's what he did to Elijah. And Elijah ends up hearing the Lord's still small voice. And what does it say? Go back. Go back. But this time, remember to keep turning to me, I think is what the implication is. 
Keep turning to me. Keep resting in me. Keep trusting in me. God invites us to remember his deliverance so that we aren't under this taskmaster of over-busyness. The rest of God is not a reward for finishing or a bonus for work well done. It is a sheer gift. And he gives us that gift of rest and he continues to call us into his rest. He calls us into his rest because he knows what we need. We need an encounter with him. Today we need an encounter with the Lord. My story isn't so unlike Pastor Mark that I started the sermon with. Um, One time there was this book called Boundaries. I don't know if any of you um, ever read it, but I saw it and I got the book and I got the video. I thought that would be good for my family to read and watch. Well, we never really got around to it because we were busy. And I was busy, and I kind of forgot about that I bought that book about boundaries. Then there was this book called Margin, and it was recommended to me by someone. And so I got that book Margin, and I put it on my bookshelf next to boundaries. And I thought, someday I'm going to get to that book, and I'm going to read that. Well, then one day I was at the Christian bookstore, and I saw this book called The Worn Out Woman. And I thought, man, can I relate. I bet that book's got some good stuff in it. So I bought the book because just the title kind of affirmed me. I felt like kind of affirmed, like, oh, worn out woman. Somebody gets how I feel right now. And I put that third book. So I've got Boundaries, Margin, and The Worn Out Woman. Did I ever stop to read any of them? No, because I was too busy. It's ridiculous. I'm glad somebody can laugh about it because I have to laugh about it because it's ridiculous. So I've got these three books on my bookshelf until finally somehow the Lord gets your attention. And so I, too, didn't have like, um, you know, a Damascus Road experience. But suddenly I find myself saying things like, you know, I just love to work and I have a hard time figuring out when to take vacation. Do you know that Americans now... Are they, not that we've got the most vacation time in the world, but we don't even take what we've got available. Americans more and more are not taking their vacation. They're asking, can they be paid for it? And so employers are saying, no, use it or lose it. Because the need for vacation, the need for rest, is something that we need. If employers recognize it, why aren't we recognizing that God told us that we need rest? And so maybe we're not doing, um, I don't know how to explain this, but this is not just for vocational ministers. This is for each one of us. What are we busy with? And are we spending time with Jesus? Because it's spending time with Jesus and in his word where we are refreshed, we're revived, we're renewed. And so it's interesting that even in this week, when I'm preparing the sermon, when I'm packing the suitcases, the temptation is still there. Last night, the temptation is still there. Maybe I haven't prepared enough for these lessons in England. 
maybe I better take three more commentaries in my bag. Could I fit them in? Because I need to study more. I need to do, because why? Is it ever good enough? And then I recognize, oh, this is an application to my sermon that I need to preach to myself before I bring it to you today to say it is about Jesus Christ. It is about Jesus. And so we need to slow down and rest. What good am I going to be as an example coming in if I am frantic and frazzled? What good are you going to do, Vic, if you are frantic and frazzled in the neighborhood? Right? It's like, who, who's God do you follow? Who is your God? You know, that was the ancient Near Eastern understanding of all these deities is that humanity had to serve them to work, to try to do things for this God, and our God comes to do things for us. And it starts with this place of intimacy with him. I don't know what your story is. I don't know what you're encountering. I don't know whether you're struggling with comparing, and that's motivating you to maybe stay busy, or maybe you're feeling threatened and you're feeling failure, and you just start to shut down. And isolate. Maybe you even feel like Elijah, wanting to just go out to the desert, feeling frustrated. I don't know what we're over busy with, but anything that's distracting or worrying us and keeping us from focusing on Jesus is a problem. And the Lord calls it out this morning. And he says, it's time for busyness and distraction and worry to stop because it's only in me he says it's only in me that you'll find your ultimate rest and peace and so for each one there's invitation and there's call to stop the busyness to identify the distraction and say no to it and to enter into that encounter that one thing that Mary chose. She chose the better thing. And today the Lord invites each of us to choose the better thing, to choose Jesus, because he is our hope. Johnny Appleseed did not say this. I just forgot to put the person's name in there that did. But the the quote is, and I'm just living under grace this morning. If we don't listen... To the Lord, we never enter into his rest. Yet, if we don't enter into his rest, we never listen. And so the Lord is calling us to enter into his rest because Psalm 39 says um, in this verse from that section, And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My only hope is in you.